Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Animator's Guide to Virtual Reality. My name is Rick Delishna here in Peterborough, Ontario. On Twitter, you can find me at xyz. And thank you, everyone, for subscribing and uh, checking out our site and sending us some leads and interesting uh, uh, Twitter feedback. I'm, I'm, I continue to be so impressed with the quality of the content that's coming in off Twitter and um, this uh, inner circle of... Uh, incredible VR technology that's VR work that's happening out there. So it's really exciting to be on the cutting edge of this. And as you know, I am, if you've been following the podcast, you know, I have a background in theater and film in addition to animation. And I have been hinting at audio for really since the beginning. Um, The closest we got was when we had Sean Stevens. Uh, He's a theatrical uh, lighting designer and, uh, we talked at length about uh, the challenges of uh, lighting for, say, theater or theater in the round. And these are some of the challenges that come along with um, lighting designers in theater. And it translates, uh, we found quite perfectly into virtual reality, where we really have to sort of let go of what we know about linear lighting or an- lighting for animation and light for, say, theater in the round. And we touched on sound then, but uh, neither of us are really qualified to discuss audio. And I am thrilled to have someone who is qualified, more than qualified, to discuss audio. His name is Stephen Barton. And uh, he's originally uh, thought he'd be a jazz musician, and he explored education in pharmacy and with hopes of graduate studies in medicine. But he eventually found himself in film school, where the magic of putting sound to picture was revealed. From that point, uh, Barton knew where his theater path would lay. He studied film at Sheridan College in Oakville, Ontario, Canada, and then returned in the early 2000s as a part-time faculty member teaching sound and sound design, and he has remained active at Sheridan since. He's a huge fan of film and basketball and all types of music, and his favorite sounds are the squeak of sneakers on a, on a gym floor, a Harmon muted trumpet, which he can explain to me in a moment, and children playing in a schoolyard. He lives in his, with his family in Burlington, Ontario. Now, hello, Stephen. But do we call you Barden? Hello. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Uh, thanks for having me. Everyone here at uh, the college does call me Barden. Uh, when I first started working on the industry uh, in the company uh, Sound Dogs, uh, when I first started there as an assistant, there were literally five Steves working there uh. at the same time. So we all very quickly became known by our last names, and for whatever reason, mine just kind of stuck. So for the last 20 years, everyone has just been calling well, me Barton. I'll call you Barton then, too. Welcome <laughs> okay. welcome to the show. Thank you. I do, I, like, I do, I do admit that I am um, a real fanboy of all the work that, ha- that comes out of Sheridan College. And, of course, I have a, a bit of history with some of the faculty. I served as president of the Toronto Animated Image Society, and there's a bit of a – there's quite a long lineage of, of, of uh, people that have worked – at Sheridan and, and volunteered with the organization and just with my background in animation, it's it's just a real thrill to have you on. And I am also humbled uh, when I find uh, someone who uh, has the respect and uh, the experience working in sound. So I think um, this is going to be a, I'm just going to let you sort of uh, <laughs> tell us what it is you're working on and, and uh, I will be enjoying the ride uh, along with our listeners as well. But speaking of our listeners, um, you should know that um, our audience is a global. Uh, we have listeners from around the world. Now, I certainly know what Sheridan College is, and anyone in Canada certainly does. But, Barton, I wonder if you can give us a little rundown on uh, the college and uh, tell me how you got how the college got to where it is today. Sure. Uh, uh, well, I suppose I should have brushed up on my uh, overall global Sheridan history. But the the college itself has been around since the '60s, and and back in its the earliest days, Sheridan was very much known as the preeminent uh, art school in the 
what we now call the Greater Toronto Area. It certainly wasn't called that back then, but uh, it was very much known as um, as the preeminent arts college um, in the Toronto area, and has grown uh, since then to include um, uh, three campuses, uh, actually four campuses in three different cities: Oakville. Uh, Brampton, Ontario, Mississauga, Ontario, and, and here in Oakville, we actually have two two different right. campuses, and, and the programs that are um, offered here range from everything in in pure art and design. Uh, obviously, the animation school is uh, enormous and known worldwide, but uh, it runs the gamut from uh, art and animation all the way through through business and health studies, computer sciences, um, etc. So um, it's it's an enormous school. Uh, um, and uh, extremely, extremely creative place to come to work every day. When I walked down the hall to come to my office, um, I walked down a hall that goes through the illustration and animation wing of the college, and I'm just consistently and constantly blown away by the quality of work that I see lining our hallways and the students that are there just you know, working away around the clock. Exactly, and and just in in terms of the the animation program itself, go that's it's it's amazing. But there are other programs. I mean, even we we have the interaction design course and and um, and audio programs as well. Um, maybe yeah. we could just jump right in because I do find this really really interesting. There's a new program being coming sure. up uh, at Sheridan in uh, in May of of 2017. It's called the Massive Program. I wonder if you could just jump right in and tell me a little bit about right. the genesis of that and tell me tell me what it is. Sure. So Massive came to fruition over, um, well, as so many things do, it came to fruition over a beer at lunch one day. And I was talking to one of my colleagues here at the college. And we lamented the fact that we have so many incredible productions, student productions that come out of the college uh, in the world of animation, in the world of film and television, and in the world of film and television, I'm talking about dramatic, documentary, experimental. We have uh, one of the best um, musical theater programs in the entire country here. Um, we now have a gaming design program. We now have uh, an advanced diploma program in uh, uh, visual effects. And all of these programs, ultimately, when the students reach their capstone projects, the students all end up needing music. And the one thing that we don't have here at the college is an inherent music program. We have the musical theater program, but that's about as close as we get. Mm -hmm. So whenever our students in film and animation and television and game design and visual effects, whenever they need music for their capstone projects, they end up having to go outside of the college, which is fine. And, and we've established some really wonderful relationships with other institutions and other um, uh, areas of, 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 of uh, music and music production in Toronto. But I just got thinking to myself, wouldn't it be an incredible opportunity, really an incredible two-way opportunity, if we were to establish a, a, a music program here at the college? Uh, and students in that program would be able to collaborate with students in all of those other programs that I mentioned, gaining real-world practical experience in composing music uh, for these student productions. And then the reciprocal would be just as rewarding, where the students in film, television, animation, game design, music theater, where they would get the opportunity to work hand-in-hand -hand with a composer in creating a piece of original music or pieces of original music for their productions. 
So this was literally back in, I think it was 2011, 2012, something like that. So we're talking, you know, four or five years ago. And uh, I mentioned, you know, this idea um, to my colleague at the time. And, and he said, wow, that's a really great idea. And I didn't really think that much more about it uh, until several weeks later, an email came from someone else in the college um, saying, hey, I heard about this idea that you have and I really like it. And can we sit down and talk? And that just turned into more and more conversations with different people in different departments of the college. Uh, and, uh, you know, it gained this incredible momentum and everyone just kept on telling me, Barton, you've got to, you have to continue to develop this. This needs to be a program here at Sheridan. And, and so here we are now, um, several years later and, uh, we're a year away from uh, the program launching. It is interesting when you, so people that don't work in the, in education, how long these things sometimes take to happen. That's <laughs> uh, true. In terms of when you, when you submit to the, to the ministry and when that things actually make their way, uh, to, to fruition. So this is a, definitely a work in progress, but it's so exciting to see this come together. Um, is this, is this a program that's designed more for, is this a program for musicians that want to work in, interactive and stage and screen or is this for producers that are working in interactive that just want to gain, gain appreciation for for music or audio recording sure our our ta- our target audience if you will or or the, the the people that we hope to have applied to the program will be musicians uh and we really think that those applicants are going to come out of uh two two big pools uh the first pool would be Students who have finished or are in the midst of an undergraduate program in music or a diploma program in music, it might be in performance, it might be in music education, any any aspect of, uh, of music, um, and who have finished or are about to finish that program and have decided that they really want to uh, sharpen sharpen their skills a little bit in a very specific area, and that hmm. area being for screen, uh, for the stage, for interactive environments like gaming and app design, that type of thing. So that's our first group uh, of um, potential students that we're looking at. And then the other group of potential students, really, we recognize the fact that out there in the big world, there are um, musicians who perhaps have never had formal training beyond maybe they had piano lessons or lessons in an instrument when they were uh, when they were young, but who have developed um, you know an incredible level of well what we would call chops uh, in mm-hmm. the industry. So yeah. they've they've just got they've got a real high level of mastery of their instrument or perhaps of of even writing music themselves. They've been playing in in bands or ensembles or trios or quartets or something like that every weekend for the past ten years of their lives. And they've simply decided that they want to formalize their education a little bit more. Um, so we're reaching out to them as well and saying that, uh, hey, there might be a home here uh, at Sheridan for you um, uh, within Massive. Now, before this program comes about, you, like you say, you've been um, outsourcing. It's not quite the word, but, but for music, for productions, the, you have relationships with, with musicians and, and audio uh, companies in the GTA. Mm-hmm. Um, in in working with them, what are the challenges that are you see? Do you see any learning process? Well, obviously, what's the learning process that goes for someone who's used to maybe composing, say, for film, moving into something like you said, uh, app development, or more particularly um, interactive or immersive experiences? What what's the biggest challenge that you see right now working in, say, VR or immersive? 
Sure. So um, it's really the it's the open endedness and the nonlinear and the non predictable mm. uh, nature of of the craft, right? Um, so, for example, when composing music for uh, you know a traditional te- drama, television show, feature film, we know that the audience member, the viewer, is going to start at the beginning of the show and watch it in a linear fashion and end up at the end of the show. And we can predict that if they do that, they will, whether consciously or subconsciously, they will understand or or experience the development of music and musical ideas as they relate to the story that's unfolding. But they will they will relate to it in a linear fashion because we can kind of control how they watch the show. Now, in a gaming environment or in this new world of VR, that might not necessarily be the case. We might not be able to control what the audience is seeing or what the audience is doing at any given point in their experience with that piece of media. Uh, so we might expect, we might think that the average video game player will move their character from point A to point C in a video game without going through point B, but maybe some players will decide to stop at point B and explore that area of, of the video game. Then all of a sudden, from a musical point of view, that, in, that raises a very interesting problem because where you might have thought, oh, well, we're going to need 45 seconds of music to get from point A to point C, suddenly that turns into needing 10 minutes of music because our character within the game has decided to explore that world within point B. And uh, how, do we, how do we, from a musical point of view, prepare for that to happen? What musical elements do we give so that the overall game designer, the producer of the game, can integrate that music into the engine of the game. That is fascinating. Uh, and, I'm actually going to interrupt you there for a minute because this is all sure. this is just wonderful for me to take this all in. Are you yeah. saying? I know you're. Just, I, I'm not. I don't want to pick you pick you apart specifically, but um, you're saying a, a 10 second um, montage might act or might require 10 minutes of of content. Is that really the ratio of how sort of game designers work? So that might be that might be an, uh, an extreme example, but so let me give you let me give you a more specific example. Maybe someone who's playing a video game, um, they move their character into uh, a world within mm. the game, and then the character uh, stops in that particular moment because the player who's playing the game, um, they get a phone call or they start chatting with one of their friends who is yeah. sitting there in the room with them. So all of a sudden, the content that's on screen. The content of the video game world starts looping, right. and and so the the composer needs to be aware that at any given time, wow, we may leap off of their yeah. intended composition, which might be going from you know bar one to bar two to bar three of the piece of music, and then all of a sudden we might line, line on land on bar eleven, and it just <laughs> it just keeps on looping. So how do we anticipate that from a composition point of view? It must requ- it must take a certain kind of personality if you're a music composer working in the games industry. That's really something different. Uh, I know people get really emotionally attached to their work. I know I do visually. Uh, I, I my in my experience with 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 audio compo- music composers, I, I, I sense the same. Gosh, you really have to somehow. What kind of personality 
is drawn to this kind of work? Or do you find people just aren't really geared for this kind of nonlinear music creation? Uh, I think if you had asked me that question or if you had asked anybody that question maybe 10 years ago, um, Mm. they probably would have had a different answer. Because 10, 20 years ago, and and even going farther back in that, um, musicians, composers, we could always put faith in the fact that an audience would hear our piece of music in a linear fashion. Yeah. Uh, and then to take that composer and suddenly work them into a world where you know they no longer have control, complete control over how their music unfolds, I think that would be very disconcerting. However, nowadays, um, those people that are creating music for apps and creating music for games, that's just that's kind of the accepted norm, mm-hmm. you know. And in, in 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 my world, my specific world that I work in most often, which is sound and sound design for feature films, right? You know, I work with some brilliant composers who uh, write you know wonderful music for a film, and they will deliver that score to me so that I'm ready to mix that into the overall soundscape for the film. Uh, but what's really interesting is that they will deliver that score to me in such a manner that I can adjust the level of the strings versus the level of the brass versus the level of the guitars versus the level of the percussion, I can actually end up altering the mix of their music to satisfy the director in, in context of the entire track of the film. So the composer might have only been listening to his or her music just by itself as they watch the film unfold. But suddenly when you start to throw in the challenges of balancing that music against dialogue, against sound effects, in in, in the entire um, context of the mix, sometimes you do end up having to change the music a little bit so that it's not fighting a particular sonic element at any given time. It really is a collaborative effort in filmmaking and and, and really... The creative industry has just become so collaborative at its core that there really is no other way of doing it or describing it. Um, I had, I got a bit, I had, yeah, yeah, I was, I was going to ask you a question. You sort of answered it there for me. Okay. This, is, this has been really wonderful. Um, oh, the, the, that's right. It was, you were talking about sort of um, mixing and in terms of, uh, you, you just briefly touched on directional mixing. Tell us a little bit about, I know that we have stereo mixes and then we have 5-1 mixes. Um, explain to me how you or a sound uh, designer would, lay, would, would put together tracks and any considerations for how to, how to mix something for a VR experience. What's, what's that even, what's that technology called? Uh, spatial awareness. There's, help me out with that. Right. So what you're actually talking about is, really cutting edge right now or the the bleeding edge if you will of mm. the research the research that that sound and sound designers or sound artists sound engineers sound designers what we're kind of experimenting with right now because um well i don't know you, you got a couple of hours let's talk about i know this. you know as, a, as the words are coming out of my mouth i'm like this could be the whole show i mean really ultimately yeah, we don't even know it's just so interesting well maybe maybe if we could focus a bit on what's going to be happening with the massive program is this Will we is Sheridan physically going to be set up with the hardware to do these kind this kind of work eventually or right off the, out of the gate? I, I think we will be. So um, we have um, a wonderful uh, think tank within Sheridan that's called the uh, the Screen Industries Research 
uh, Screen Industries Research and Training. I'll have to double check to make sure that I've got that acronym correct. But we call it CERT, S-I-R-T. Who comes up with these and, acronyms at Sheridan? I know, right? This is crazy. And by the way, the massive one was all me, and it literally <laughs> hit me in the middle of the night. It was literally <laughs> laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, and I'm trying to think of a name for this thing, and massive out of the blue just hit me. Anyway, so CERT, what CERT is, is a research think tank for um, the screen industries. And they are, uh, they are working in, in cutting edge areas with things like motion capture and VR and, and 360 production, 360 degree, degree production. Right. Um, the fellow by the name of uh, John Helliker, um, heads up CERT. And he and I are definitely in, in constant um, communications to talk about, uh, how audio is going to work into this 360-degree visual world that we are you know, proposing that we start to produce in. Mm-hmm. Because audio, of course, has always been 360 degrees, you know? If you think about it, right, where, yeah. where our field of vision has always been limited to something like, you know, 130, 140 degrees mm. in front of us yeah. at any given time, we've always been able to hear all around us. We've always had that capability as, as humans. Now, in the world of VR, what we're doing is we are developing software and therefore developing content for that software that allows us to visually move our, uh, visually respond to the motion of our head so that we see things in the virtual world that were behind us, that, that was uh, beside us or something like that. Yeah. But the challenge here, of course, is that you would be able to hear those things. And one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, um, uh, do we want the audio to be something that is, uh, for lack of a better word, a proactive or reactive? Do we want there to be audio cues within the VR world that encourage our participants to look one way or another way? Or do we want them to be a, a reactive audio experience, meaning that when the audience, when the participant moves their head in a particular way or moves their field of vision in a particular way, how does the audio world respond to that? Um, you know, and there are no right and wrong answers. I right imagine it's a bit of both. I think it will be. I, yeah. I think you're absolutely right because the audio content could actually be one of the things that we can use to try to guide our participants in a particular direction. Right. We actually discussed that with uh, our lighting discussion on the podcast, like that we using lighting cues as mm-hmm. a, a tool, because uh, that, that is a, that is definitely a problem with VR is that sometimes getting the audience oriented the right way that you don't want them to miss something going on in, um, behind them, for example. So you use lights and you use sound. These are tricks that the game industry have been using for a while, but there's yeah. something a little more, Hmm. There's an element of a little, I think, a little more control when you're trying to do narrative filmmaking um, and be a little more subtle in your cues and your direction to the audience that I think sound is very important for. So uh, this is wonderful. I, I, I sense that this was going to be a, that this is that this is an ongoing uh, issue and challenge for a sound designer to uh, to think spatially like this, to think. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I like to think of it as a, a challenge. I don't think I, I, I don't want to put a negative connotation in, in calling it an issue because I think that what we're really developing oh, yeah. now is um, 
this this really true world of immersive sound, which we've always kind of been aiming for, that's kind of always been our goal, is to take our audience, whether it's someone sitting in their living room or someone sitting in a movie theater or someone playing a video game with or without, you know, an Oculus Rift on their head, um, we've always tried to bring our audience more into the story through the use of sound. And I think, you know... I'm not saying I'm not saying we're there yet. We're not mm. we're not at the you know promised land yet, but we're certainly getting closer, and it's pretty darn exciting. Hey, listen, what do you think about the the interface that the per, a person will use to experience the perfect VR sound mix? Is this something that can be delivered through headphones, or is this something else? Yeah, I think it's going to have to be delivered through headphones, really. Um, yeah, I haven't I haven't quite uh, quite finished my my opinion piece if you will on that <laughs> because headphones of course the downside to headphones is that they make it strictly a personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um a singular personal experience and so yeah. far in my professional career I've always been interested in the social experience of sound design and of filmmaking. I really believe in the aspect of uh, of movie watching as a social experience where we go to a movie theater and there's a hundred of us in a dark room watching the story unfold and we can actually feed back off of everyone's visceral response to what they're seeing up on screen. Yeah. It, it's our generation's version of the campfire story, right? Where we mm-hmm. used to sit around a campfire and we would get scared by the scary, scary stories that are told around the campfire. And it would be made, those stories would be made scarier because we were all together around the campfire. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, that's what it is now going to see the movies. That's why going to see a movie will never be replaced completely, in my opinion, by the experience of sitting and watching Netflix or sitting in your basement watching a Blu-ray. Um, and it's the same thing with this, with the new VR world is that we're, we're siloing a little bit, meaning that we're kind of putting the gaming experience or the VR experience into that silo. And I think we need to make sure that somehow or another, it can still be a social experience because I think that that's still really exciting and, and just really human. It's interesting on a previous podcast, Robert French, who's an indie game developer, uh, explained his problem with VR and that, uh, you might be having this, uh, totally wonderful solo experience with the goggles and you're totally you with the experience and you're having good. Meanwhile, someone is stealing your backpack. (laughs) (laughs) There's something to be said for the group experience that actually, you know, keeps you, uh, you know, alert to your surroundings and alert to your audience, just as you said, but at the same time, some of the best VR experiences right now are solo and, he proposed, and I actually, I've been thinking about it quite a bit, actually, and it's an interesting episode if you have a chance to roll back. Um, just that, and actually, the VR may not be the end of the line here in terms of this new technology, and I think I think you would agree. I, I know we are doing a lot of research on this at RDXYZ, that as big and as interesting as virtual reality is, the next step is augmented reality. And then we mm-hmm. bring reality back into the mix, and maybe that might be the hybrid that we're looking for in terms of bringing your audience back into an experience. VR is, is a very solo, very siloed, you're on your own, and that, that has its strengths and weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses, as you said, is the social aspect. But augmented reality kind of brings the audience back into the into the mix, perhaps. Right. I don't know. 
I, I, I really don't know. There's, there's, there's so many uh, directions things are going in. And that's actually one of the reasons, you know, with the podcast, we, you know, we, we try not to spend too much time talking about the tech and uh, focus a little bit more on the social impact or the creative uh, side of it. So this is a wonderful conversation to be having. Listen, I wanted to ask about, and, um, and I, I don't want to put you on the spot because I didn't actually bring this up originally, but I'm sure you have some uh, some in- interesting uh, student projects that are going on at Sheridan, or if there's some students that have maybe picked up a developer kit uh, in terms of the Rift or what have you. What's going on at Sheridan in VR right now? Maybe not formally with the school, but with some of the students that you want to talk about. Well, um, yeah, it's a great question because um, just this past week hmm. – um, Sorry, let me let me give a little bit of background. In, in our second year of our film and television undergraduate degree program, right? Uh, we have a program. We have a course called uh, Transmedia. It's just a very simple <laughs> title called Transmedia, which, as you can probably appreciate, uh, is an incredibly large basket of a course, meaning mm-hmm. that it can be so many things in the world of transmedia. And uh, just last week, our, our professor uh, the, in the transmedia course surveyed his um, students, which is the entire cohort. It's a mandatory course. Everyone has to take it. And we surveyed the entire cohort. And in the world of transmedia, um, they, he asked, what are you most interested in? What, what area of kind of non-traditional production are you interested in? And it was almost unanimous that VR or 360-degree um, production or 360-degree storytelling is one of the things uh, or is the thing that students are interested in exploring. Um, and what's really cool about that is that that is uh, an, an incredibly large paradigm shift literally from 12 months ago. Wow. Um and so everything that's happened over the, the last um, the last 12 months, you know, at the Consumer Electronics Show and all these different places where this new tech has been has been un- unveiled, and I like you don't really like to get wrapped up in the tech, but it's certainly making our future storytellers because that's really what my interest is in is in storytelling. Yep. It's it's making our storytellers suddenly realize the possibilities um, that are out there. And boy, it's complex. You know, it's really complex. Where where we used to write a linear script that, as I said, would always take us from the beginning of the story to the end of the story in a very linear fashion, we're going to now start training our students to say, well, what if? What if our viewer, what if your participant doesn't go from point A all the way to the end? You've got to start building in these side stories and, and whatnot that we'll explore too. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it, and as a teacher, I think I qualify myself to make this statement not only will you, I think it might, the table might be turned. I think what will the students be teaching us? Yeah. And you're that's right. what's really exciting about this because they, for them, this is, um, there's no boundaries. There's no, uh, no stopgap for them. They just see this as a, as a really interesting way of telling a story. And it's sort of our job as, as educators to like respond to that. And it sounds like, wow, like this from the survey that you told me, they are on board. I am so excited. Are there any students that are working in, in VR right now in any capacity that you're aware of? <clears throat> so here's what I think is going to happen. Um, and what this really comes from is the accessibility of the technology, right? Because if you mm. think about this, if, if, um, if, you had told, if, if you had proposed to me or somebody had proposed to me 10 years ago <laughs> that a student would be able to buy um, 
a, a rig, a camera rig of some type that would let them shoot in the equivalent to 35 millimeter or higher resolution mm. in 360 degrees, <laughs> that a student would be able to buy that themselves based on the proceeds of their part-time job, <laughs> um, I would have, you know, I would have laughed at you. Anybody yeah. would have laughed at you. But of course, this technology is readily accessible and available. You can get a couple of students that can, you know, put, put a few thousand dollars max together and go out and, and put together a, a, you know, a 360 VR rig just using, you know, GoPros or something like that mm -hmm. and, and start producing stuff themselves. Um, so my guess is, we're sitting here right now in uh, the beginning of April, my guess is that as soon as our students kind of disperse for their, their summer break and the weather gets better and they get outside doing stuff that students do in the summer, my guess is we're probably going to see a bunch of stuff come back in September for you know our next academic year. And the students are going to be saying to us, hey, look what we shot in the summer. Uh, we want to do this now and we want to apply some type of academic you know, reward to it, if you will, or academic exp exploration to it. So I can't tell you if anybody's doing it right now, but my guess is that if, if you and I had a follow-up conversation to this uh, one in, in the fall, that my guess is there probably will be happening. It probably will be happening. We are in total sync here. I could talk with you for hours. This has been interesting, but maybe we'll use this as our cue to maybe break for now. But I can assure you, I'd love to talk with you more about what's going on at Sheridan. And, and certainly as you lead up to the massive launch in, in 2017, I want to hear more about that. And definitely, what are the students working on at school? So tell me what you're working on. Tell me about anything you want to plug or, or anything coming up right now that you want to tell us about. Awesome. Thank you. Well, you know what? I have a great relationship with the college here at Sheridan. And whenever the opportunity presents itself, um, the college is always gracious enough to let me kind of do my do my personal research, um, mm -hmm. just like just like a scientist might uh, have a particular area of research that they like to do in addition to their their teaching. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we are all still researchers um, by way of filmmaking um, mm -hmm. here within our within our department. So this summer, I've got the great opportunity to continue to collaborate with uh, a longtime client of mine, Paul W. S. Anderson, um, and in uh, working on the sound design for his upcoming uh, feature film, which is the last installment of the Resident Evil franchise. So it's called Resident Evil, the final chapter. I was going to say, and, was this uh, the Resident, e Resident Evil? But it is. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So this is number six in the franchise. And uh, so that's going to be the majority of my summer. I will be spending, instead of spending my summer on a nice warm beach somewhere, I will be spending my summer in a dark sound design studio and re-recording mixing stage and uh, coming up with really loud uh, sounds of undead and mm -hmm. uh, creatures of the apocalypse. There will be some uh, watermelons being smashed, I'm sure. I expect there are. There will be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and those of you in the sound world, the watermelons uh, squenching is is a very key. It's it's the Wilhelm scream of of horror films. Or what it are is. some of, what are some of the in a horror movie? What are some of the most interesting uh, props that you've used to get sound effects? Wow, I mean anything, uh, anything that you've got in your fridge that's going bad <laughs> that you would never ever think of actually putting anywhere near your mouth is the first thing that I would put next to a microphone. <laughs> so they always tend to make um, really great sounds. Uh, and you know what? The, one of the really challenging things is in a movie like Resident Evil or any movie that has creatures in it um, is that we really 
it's a it's a great challenge to give those creatures some type of emotional context. So, mm. you know, you can go out and record animal sounds and roars and um, uh, animal breathing and all that type of stuff, and you can process it and slow it down and enhance it. But what you end up needing to do is is still adding some level of what we can consider to be, you know, human emotion or sentient awareness. And the way that we do that these days is by layering, you know, human performance with some type of animal sounds. And that's a huge challenge. Um, and if you explore any of the, the, the greatest creature films that have been out there uh, in the past uh, 10 years, you will explore, you will hear sounds that have had, uh, or sorry, uh, creatures that have had for their sounds. Uh, human sounds layered with animal sounds. So that's uh, that's always a challenge. And when we're working on the undead in the uh, Resident Evil world, that's always a big challenge, is to make them still seem somewhat human, even if they are inhuman. You didn't hear it from me, but I have a dark history in indie film, indie horror film uh, lineage. <laughs> and if you were to research my name in indie horror film, you would find Bikini Party Massacre 2001 <laughs> being... Um, <laughs> Somewhere, I don't know if it's quite made it on my IMDb page, but um, it was one of the best summers of my life, actually. I really did enjoy working on that, and uh, uh, I, I love it. I have a, a soft spot for that. In fact, in fact, if you haven't had a chance, and I know we've got – your time is limited, but um, our very first podcast uh, guest was Doug Tilley, and he's a uh, pop culture critic and a writer for uh, a number of um, blogs, and um, he has a particular soft spot for – for indie horror film, you know, Love it. you're working a little beyond that, but it, but some of the sensibility is the same, and just the the joy of uh, just putting together uh, uh, horror films is just so much fun because everything is on the table if if you want it to be, and like you said, the the mixing of human human and animal sounds, like these are just some of the tricks that that you pick up over the years. So wonderful, I'm glad we kind of share that little <laughs> a little bit of a connection. But I, I do, I, I'm very proud of the work that I did, and definitely that was the Doug Tilly episode number two. We talk about sort of indie horror right. film. But listen, Barden, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, so through um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my personal Twitter is at Stephen Barden. So uh, no spaces, no underscores, or anything like that. S T E P H E N B A R D E N. So at Stephen Barden on Twitter. And um, uh, I have two email addresses kind of in, in my my academic world. If they want to reach me and talk to me anything about Massive or anything about the film and television programs at Sheridan, it's just my last name, Barden, at SheridanCollege.ca. Mm -hmm. And then out in the professional world, in the crazy sound design world, it's, my again, my, again, my last name, at SoundDogs.ca, S-O-U-N-D-D-O-G-S.ca. To say it was a pleasure to have a moment with, to speak with you today would be an understatement. I really enjoyed our talk, and I do hope that we get a chance to uh, connect again. Anytime. Just let me know. Listen, that's great. And uh, if anyone needs more information, it's Sheridan College, uh, SheridanCollege.ca for all the programs that we talked about today. The massive program is coming up in, um, I think it was May 2017. So we've got some that's time right. if you're interested in that. And that is a work in progress that's being developed as we speak. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. If uh, you have any questions, best way to reach out to me is rd.xyz or rdxyz on Twitter. I read every post and suggestion, respond when I can. And uh, by all means, uh, tell your friends and subscribe to our podcast. <laughs>